podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Red Inca, we go back to 1973 for cricket's first World Cup. The tournament was devised by legendary cricketers Rachel Hayhoe Flint and millionaire Jack Haywood. So this week's guest is an expert on women's cricket history. Raf Nicholson, editor of Cricket Her. Raf and I chat about where cricket was in 1971, the weird scheduling of this tournament, the rain rules, which are perhaps even weirder, political interference, a final, well, a kind of a final, Enid Bakewell, and of course a fair bit on Hey-Ho Flint. Raf, can you take me through what women's cricket was like in 1971? Wow, that's a huge question. I want to know every woman who was playing, what she was doing. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously women's cricket has been going for hundreds of years at this point, but formally it had taken until 1926 for the Women's Cricket Association to form. So there was now a governing body of women's cricket in England, the Women's Cricket Association, the WCA. So they were running things. Um, It was very much an amateur undertaking. And by that, I don't mean that they um, weren't kind of passionate about what they were doing, but nobody was getting paid anything. So everyone who was playing was doing so whilst also doing other work. And everyone who was running it generally tended to be kind of older women who were kind of of independent means or were retired or whatever. So that's the kind of situation. It's, it was very small scale. It wasn't really getting very much media coverage. There was actually a report published by the UK Sports Council, who were the kind of forerunners of UK sports, so the sort of government body that ran sports. And they published a report in 1969 saying that women's cricket was dying. So it was really struggling at this point for survival, I'd say. So 1971, at that point, how many people would you expect to turn up at a test match? And I'm talking England, Australia, maybe England, New Zealand. Oh, it would be less than 50, I would think. Having said that, they had had a really great kind of immediate post-Second World War revival where they were getting record crowds. So we're not seeing a totally linear progression where women's cricket's really small scale and then suddenly you get 86,000 people at the MCG. It does ebb and flow a bit. But during the 60s, I think cricket, men's cricket too, um, in England, Mm. was really struggling because it was the kind of almost the antithesis of the swinging 60s in terms of it was seen as kind of something that was a little bit old-fashioned and there were lots of smaller sports things like squash and golf were really taking off, whereas cricket was struggling. So that obviously went across then to the women's game as well. So at this stage, Rachel Hayhoe Flint comes in and we could do another entire episode next year when I get you back on uh, to talk about her specifically. But she gets involved with someone called Jack Howard. Now, hopefully most people have listened to this will know about who Rachel Hayhoe Flint is, but we'll explain her later. But first, who is Jack Howard? It's Jack Hayward, I think. Is it? Well, there you go. I have so little idea who he is that I've either written his name down wrong or there's an autocorrect. Who is Jack Hayward? Who is Jack Howard? Who are all of these one man? Okay. So essentially, he was a millionaire businessman who had got involved in women's cricket through the efforts of Rachel Hayhoe Flint. So ahead of the big 1968-9 England tour to Australia and New Zealand, 
Rachel and a couple of other female cricketers in the England side had basically written to hundreds of different businesses and lots of rich people saying, please, will you give us some money to let us go on tour? Which relates to what I said about the idea of of nobody making any money out of women's cricket. They're really struggling to get these kind of expensive tours off the ground. Um, And one of the people that Rachel wrote to was a kind of a millionaire, possibly even a billionaire called Charles Haywood. And he wasn't particularly interested, but his son, Jack Haywood, who was also a millionaire, was interested. And the famous line was kind of, I like women and I like cricket, so why wouldn't I like the two things combined? Which is perhaps, we might look back now and go, "Mm, you probably wouldn't express it in those terms today, but that was what he said. So he had previously funded a couple of England women's trips to the Caribbean. So there were teams at this point operating in Jamaica and in Trinidad. He'd funded a a triangular tournament. So England had visited in 1969-70 and 1970-71. So he'd put some money into that. And so he was kind of already a benefactor to women's cricket. It is interesting, like going back, there's a lot of very rich people in women's cricket that sort of helped it along at many different times, wasn't there? It was probably far more a game of the upper classes of the women than it maybe was of the men at that point. Yeah, I think that's right. And as I've said, that is because there isn't a professional women's game, really. And there was that kind of one group of professional women in about 1890 um, who'd been paid to play by this one rich man and then he'd absconded with the profits. But really, women's cricket was entirely amateur up until very, very recently. So, yeah, it tended to be dominated by women who could afford to do it either in their spare time around work, like being a school teacher where you could play in the summer holidays, for example, or somebody like Myrtle McLagan, who was one of the very early England players in the 30s, who described herself as being of independent means. So there was money in the family, basically. Also, I mean, for those who haven't gone into the history of women's cricket, there are some belting names. Myrtle McLagan is one of them. Enid Bakewell, Betty Snowball, just like name after name, where I'm just like, if more people knew about this, women's cricket would have grown quicker. If you had... You know, a snowball's chance on the back page of the paper when the women were playing. <laughs> I just feel that these things sort of moved on. But obviously, Rachel Hayhoe Flint will go on to be an incredible figure in almost English sport and almost English society at times. She worked in football. She was a commentator. She was, what, the first or second, probably the first women um, MCC member. All those sorts of great things that she's gone on to be a part of. She was also a great cricketer as well, by far the best player of her era. Myrtle McLaggen, in fact, maybe one of the other few players who, who might have ever been almost as good as her, but very few players have ever played as long as well as Rachel Hayhoe Flint. But in 1971, how well known is she, being that the sport is not huge? Well, that's an interesting question. In a way, she was better known than the sport and that ended up being a bit problematic because in 1977, kind of after the World Cup, so maybe it's not necessarily relevant here, but she was fired from the captaincy and there was a big hoo-ha about it because, and it was felt to be perhaps because the other people who were running the Women's Cricket Association felt that she had the personal limelight rather than the sport. Mm. So she, in the late 60s, kind of got into freelance journalism. She'd originally been a PE teacher and then she'd sort of switched careers and she was working for local papers in Wolverhampton where she'd grown up and then in 1967 she started writing for the Daily Telegraph so she kind of got a bit well known because of that and then after they came back from the 1968-9 tour which actually got a reasonable amount of press coverage because of her doing it she'd kind of run off the field at the end of the day and then compose her copy and phone it through which is what you had to do in those days so it was quite exhausting but she was kind of gaining 
a bit of profile for the sport, but also a reputation for herself as a good writer. She was kind of coming back and then appearing on TV and winning awards for public speaking and that kind of thing. So by the early 70s, I'd say she was already relatively well known, but women's cricket, not so much. So her and Haywood are together in his Sussex mansion. I hope I got Sussex right. He did. Sounds like from the little bits that I've read that it sort of almost happened organically, like a, a normal conversation where they both kept pushing each other until they came up with the idea of a Women's World Cup. Is that sort of how you know it? Yes, absolutely. So they became friends after he became a benefactor of the WCA and she was staying I'm, at I'm his house. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, she was staying at his house. There was a kind of weekend of women's cricket going on in Eastbourne. And after they'd shared the, the day's play, she'd been playing, he'd been watching, they went back to his house. And and it sounds to me like it was a kind of, you know, let's drink whiskey and smoke cigars kind of evening. And so they stayed up late into the night talking about how they could advance women's cricket. And he just turned to her and said, well, why don't we have a world tournament and she went, oh, but it'll be really expensive. And he was like, so what? I'm a millionaire. That's not actually how the conversation went. I'm just <laughs> extrapolating here. But obviously, that was the big challenge of having a, a world tournament like that was, well, who's going to bankroll it? And he basically said, sure, I will. And ended up paying £40,000, which in those days was a huge amount of money in order to kind of fly in all these teams from around the world. But yeah, it seems to have been conceived quite organically just over, as I say, possibly a few alcoholic beverages and cigars. So the teams of that first World Cup, so it's 1971 is that conversation. It's 1973 when it comes about. You've got England, Australia, New Zealand. So far, so normal. Then you've got Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago. So a bit of a sidestep. Then you've got the International Eleven and Young England. Now, it's quite interesting. I don't know how much you followed the Men's Physical Disability World Cup that was on recently. It had five teams in it, not all of which, I should say, were necessarily, you know, picked with all the players available. Some were from particular regions of, of different countries. And they couldn't call it a World Cup because the ICC wouldn't allow them to. There's a bit of that in this 1973 World Cup, isn't there? That's absolutely right. And actually, in a way, they could call it a World Cup because nobody was going to stop them at that point because it was the WCA who were making the decisions. And the, the ICC didn't really do anything in those days. The ICC was just a very occasional meeting and a few telegrams and phone calls. So by the time the ICC would have realised there was a Women's World Cup, it would have been run for the second time. Yeah, it's quite interesting because apparently um, somebody was telling me, this is a bit of an aside, but somebody was telling me that with women's rugby, when they tried to have the first World Cup, the men's rugby people stopped them calling it a World Cup, but they had to call it a World Tournament instead. So I think that the women really in 1975 should have turned around to the ICC and said, I'm sorry, you can't call it a World Cup because ours is the World Cup. You have to call yours a World Tournament. That's slightly by the by. So at this point in time, there really aren't that many countries playing women's cricket. So as I said, you've got women's cricket going on in Jamaica. So there was a Jamaican Women's Cricket Association formed in 1966. And then in 1967, a Trinidad and Tobago Women's Cricket Association forms. And then by the early 70s, the only kind of sides or countries who are running women's teams, the Netherlands were playing as well. But all of the contact with, that England had with the Netherlands seems to have done on the basis of the Netherlands as being a bit of a developmental side. So mm. I'm not quite sure about that. Well, the Netherlands almost played in the next World Cup, didn't they? But they ran out of money. So they were obviously there and thereabouts, weren't they? 
Yeah, exactly. If we think of, say, India, for example, the Women's Cricket Association of India wasn't actually founded until 1973. And I think they were actually founded just before the World Cup. And there's kind of um, reports that actually they sent a telegram to the WCA, because obviously that's how you communicated in those days. They sent a telegram saying, please, can we be in the World Cup? And the WCA had at that point already made all the arrangements, so it wasn't actually possible. Mm. But yeah, I guess we didn't have a West Indies women's team until a bit later as well. So they're not kind of playing as a West Indies federation until the late 70s. So at this point, and the International eleven is really interesting. I do want to get to them, but I want to start at the start of the tournament. The first game was Jamaica versus New Zealand. Now... I mean, the ICC have had some bizarre first games in tournaments before. I think the last World T20, the first game of the tournament, men's World T20, was Zimbabwe versus Hong Kong. Jamaica versus New Zealand is not a box office game in England, is it? And then it rained. Yes, it did. It was a very soggy start. And the sad thing is that they'd already had the teams in England for a couple of weeks before this point, and it had been scorching, baking hot sunshine. And they played a few kind of warm-up fixtures. I think there was a warm-up tournament. It was at that tournament that Roger Bannister, who was the sports minister at that point, opened the tournament officially. But then as soon as they actually started with the official World Cup fixtures, what do you know? It rains. And so that first fixture was completely washed out. And then several of the other matches were also affected by rain as well. There's some really interesting things when you look at the scheduling as well. So that game, I think, was played, I'm just going to pick a random date, but the 23rd, for instance. The next games are played on the 26th, and there's two games in the one day. So Australia, I'm trying to think who Australia were playing. Australia were playing Young England, and England were playing the International eleven. We will get to them, it's okay. But yeah, again, let's say you've got, at that stage, 2,000 hardcore women's cricket fans in the UK. You are splitting your crowd a little bit there to have two games on the one day, aren't you? You are. That's a really interesting point. And nothing that I've read actually kind of gives a proper rationale for that. So I can take a kind of educated guess, which is that it was either to do with money in terms of trying to minimise the travel maybe between the fixtures or alternatively it might have been to do with just ground availability because they really struggled to get grounds. As I said, women's cricket, really small scale, really not taken very seriously and trying to persuade anyone to host one of these matches was really difficult. I mean, they found that even two decades later in 93, by the 90s you think people are a bit more progressive but even organising the 93 World Cup which was the next one held in England, they couldn't get grounds for that either. People were like, no, why would we host a women's cricket match? So if you look at the list of grounds that they're playing at, I think the only first-class ground that one of any of the group stage or any of the matches except the final were played at is Hove. So Sussex were obviously a bit more forward-thinking. But the rest, you know, it's sort of club grounds largely. And then obviously the final at Edgbaston. Would Hove have been perhaps because of Hayward's Sussex connections as well? So he might have thrown himself around there. Yeah, it's possible. Now I need to get on to the International eleven. So England played them in the first game, crushed them. Uh, International eleven did well, though, throughout the tournament. They didn't have a terrible tournament. Who are they? <laughs> Where did they come from? How did they come about? Okay, so it's actually slightly controversial, and this is probably why people don't really talk about it. It's South Africa. So I thought it initially... <laughs> I didn't look it up so I could ask you on this podcast, but the minute I saw International eleven, I went, I wonder how many people from Rhodesia and South Africa are in this team. 
Well, actually, none, ultimately. Good. But the point was that the WCA or, and Rachel, when they initially conceived the tournament, were like, oh, we'll invite South Africa, which in hindsight seemed extraordinarily naive that they thought that they would get away with doing that. And they then were like, OK, well, maybe we can't have a, an actual South African side, so we'll have an international eleven. And they did issue invites to five South African women to play in that international eleven. So it was sort of a way of trying to include South Africa by the back door, basically. Mm. And then obviously that's very problematic when two of the other teams in the tournament are Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago. I just can't fathom why they thought that Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago would just go, okay, sure. So obviously what happens is the two Caribbean nations step in and say, no, we're not going to come if you have South Africans playing in the international eleven. And Rachel Aho Flint in her autobiography says, unhappily, politics won again. The West Indian team threatened to withdraw and we're advised it will be an unwise and potentially disruptive move. So the WCA were forced to back down. So that hasn't aged well. <laughs> I know. I know it hasn't at all, has it? So that's why it came about. And then obviously they had conceived it with the International Eleven as part of the schedule. So they then just had to draft in some other players from the other competing nations. So it ends up being a couple of women from each of the other countries, basically. So basically players who weren't quite good enough to play for New Zealand, Australia and, and Exactly. And, okay. See, I would have hoped <laughs> that someone like Hey, her Flint would have looked at all this and just be like, well, we can't do that. But it, it is a really interesting time. So I don't know how much you know about the men's history and the rugby history. It's all happening right at that moment. So I was hoping they were on the right side of it. And they're just not there. Just not there. All right. Now, Trinidad is a really interesting team for me. As you said, they've only, so was it six years, seven years after they've come up with their federation? So they're very new. They never scored over 124 in the tournament, but they did actually win some games. My guess is that there is a monumental drop-off between England, New Zealand and Australia and everyone else in this tournament. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's obviously about longevity, isn't it? So England have been playing international cricket since 1934, Australia and New Zealand the same. And some of these other teams, as I say, had been playing as representative teams for less than 10 years. Now, obviously, they'd been sort of women's cricket going on for a long time before that. But if you haven't got the regular competition, if you've never really played international cricket before, then that's going to be difficult coming to a tournament for the first time. I suppose you could look at the scorecards and go, oh, well, a lot of those matches weren't very competitive. On the other hand, you could go, well, it was a great experience for some of those women to play in that tournament and to actually be exposed to some of that kind of really teams who'd been playing a lot longer Mm. than they had, I suppose. When you say not competitive, there's a game in this tournament that I wish there was footage of every ball. I don't know if you've seen this before, but Jamaica played Trinidad, and it looks like the most crazy game of cricket I've come across. So basically, Jamaica get bowled out for 97, and then Trinidad make 98 in 48 overs, eight wickets down. The tension of that game, that whole second innings must have been just brilliant it's a bit like what you have now in in the associate levels that's like you know a netherlands versus scotland game where they're just like both teams are just clawing onto each other because they can and when you look at what has happened with west indies women's cricket since then and we learn this lesson over and over again in cricket don't we that that you have to give these teams an opportunity would you say that on a very basic level that by the next world cup the quality of cricket had gone up a little bit Oh, it's really hard to say as because there isn't really any footage and there's very little even written press coverage. You weren't there for all this, Raph. I thought you were there. 
it's such a shame. I think that it's a little bit complicated because um, the next World Cup, I think there's only kind of four or five teams who mm. end up competing. And um, it really does seem to be a bit of a seesaw backwards and forwards between who is sort of politically allowed to participate and who can afford to participate. And this issue about South Africa rumbles on. So they actually try and stage, this is ridiculous, but they try and say they're going to stage the second Women's World Cup in South Africa. Oh my God, what are you doing here? Which was early 1978. Um, oh my when it God. Actually took place. It's 78. Yeah, and then obviously politics intervenes and they can't. <laughs> so it ends up being staged in India. But yeah, there's there's lots of different things going on. I love how it didn't work in South Africa. We went to India, the, the obvious uh, natural South African alternative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's weird things within the tournament. And I think you know what I'm going to ask about here. So I, I went through the games looking for things like the Trinidad-Jamaica game. And I would come across New Zealand-England game which is bizarre to me as a cricket person, especially as a cricket analyst. New Zealand made 105 for seven in what I assume is rain-reduced 35 overs. This was 55 overs or 60 overs this tournament? 60 overs. 60 overs. So they made 105 for seven in 35 overs, obviously quite rain-reduced. England back for 15 overs. They make 34, losing one wicket, and they lose the game. Do you know what the rain regulations were? Because this is so early in one-day cricket. Like, we're talking... Men's one-day cricket barely exists at this point. The regulations outside maybe the John Player League, and even then that was more of a league rather than you know a final structure and all that sort of stuff. Can you take me through any of this and let me know what went on in that game? Yeah, it's really bizarre, isn't it? I had a look at the rules. I kind of dug them out. It looks like the WCA were trying to base their rules on the Gillette Cup, so the men's kind of county 50-over competition. I'll just read out from what the rules say, and it says... If the number of overs for the team batting second has to be curtailed to fewer than that for the team batting first, then their score will be reduced in the same ratio as the number of overs has been reduced. Now, I'm not very mathematically minded, so I have no idea if that is what happened in this particular event, but that was what the rules said. I would assume that the game stopped at 34 for one, looking at that scorecard, rather than that's not the reduced total that England have been made. Also, and you'll probably be aware of this yourself, you can't have a game now if you don't have 20 overs. Anyway, also 34 for one, they're only chasing 105 for seven. I know. They would have backed them to win that. Anyway, we'll let that go because that was well, very... I, just to say on that as well, Enid Bakewell, who you did mention earlier briefly, apparently kind of remembering this, said that one of the issues was that a lot of the women who were playing didn't have spikes. They didn't have proper cricket shoes. Oh. And so the umpires were really reluctant to try and push on through playing through any rain because they thought that someone was going to have an accident. So I don't know whether that played any role. But looking at the scorecard, it is very, very bizarre indeed. I agree. I'm very glad you brought up Ina Bakewell again because I am going back to the Bakewell. 88 she averaged. She made 200. So the only 200 she made in one-day cricket, although she didn't play that many games, I think just over 20 altogether. But she was the best player of that tournament by a considerable distance. None of the bowlers really dominated as much as she did with the bat. Yeah, I think that's fair. Leading run scorer in the competition. There's still a a record that she set in conjunction with Lynn Thomas, who was her fellow opener, who's a Welsh player. Their record for an opening stand in a World Cup still holds. So they put on 246 for the first wicket against the International Eleven at Hove. Given that this was the first ever World Cup, that's probably quite impressive that that still stands. Yeah, definitely. Enid Bakewell, by this point, had kind of already made a little bit of a name for herself. She'd become the first woman to have a feature page spread in Wisden 
after she'd scored over a thousand runs and taken over a hundred wickets on that sixty-eight nine to of Australia and New Zealand. So she'd already kind of established herself as a, a very nifty player. I think she was kind of known for being quite aggressive and quite quick between the wickets, both of which um, in women's cricket at that time weren't things that the game was particularly known for. And she averaged over 50 in test cricket as well, didn't she? I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but if you say that, Jared, then I'm going to defer to you. She certainly had a very impressive record, but didn't manage to play as much as she could have, partly because she kept being pregnant, which is slightly inconvenient in one sense, although obviously brings great joy having children, as I'm sure you can attest to. <laughs> Talk to me about the final. Was this at one stage supposed to be a round-robin tournament and they tacked a the final onto the end, or how did that all come about? Again, it's partly about money. It's about how many fixtures you can afford to stage. So yeah, I think it effectively is a round-robin tournament. And the England-Australia last match, which is often labelled a final, wasn't actually a final. It was just the last match of the round-robin because it was felt that inevitably England and Australia were going to be the ones who would be competing if they did have a final. So that was how they scheduled it. And actually... Australia could have kind of guaranteed that they would win the World Cup even before that match had been played. Because of the stupid England-New Zealand rain situation, it meant that if Australia had won their penultimate match against the International eleven, they would have gone into that last match at Edgbaston. And even if they'd lost, they would still have won the World Cup, which could have been quite an embarrassing bit of a PR disaster. But fortunately, if you're England, that match against the International eleven for Australia got completely washed out by rain. So it meant that the tournament was still sort of alive going into that last match that was effectively a final, but wasn't really. And do we know what the crowd was for that last match? The contemporary newspapers reckon it was about 1,500. Um, okay. And as I say, like for women's cricket at that time, that was really good. No, I mean, you'd take that considering the sort of shambolic nature of the tournament and the, the rain and everything, wouldn't you? The fact that it's not a final and it's a final, I think 1500 is quite good. Princess Anne was there. Did she have anything to do with the tournament or just very much shoving a trophy across? I don't think she did, as far as I know. I think that she, they probably wanted a representative of the royal family and she was available. So, yeah, there is a wonderful photo of her presenting the trophy to Rachel Hago Finn. And I'm sure that Rachel probably said something hilarious to her because she was known for being witty and making those kind of silly comments. But yeah, I don't know that she actually had anything much to do with it. And it must have been a big enough deal because the team was then asked to go to Downing Street as well after that, weren't they? Yeah, they were given a champagne reception by Edward Heath, I believe. And apparently Rachel presented him with a cricket bat, which (laughs) I was trying to find out more about this and I couldn't really other than she presented him with a cricket bat. So that's funny. Other than the novelty of the event, where does this sort of fit in? Is this a watershed moment for women's cricket? Because you keep talking about these sort of up and down moments and it feels like it's an important thing looking back on. Perhaps had a, you know, a good way of maybe bringing some of those boards together who realised suddenly they could play women's cricket. But perhaps it was not a huge moment in the women's game at that time. I think... It is big in a couple of ways. It is important for a couple of reasons. So it's the reason why England go on and and are able to have a women's match at Lords in 1976, for example. The WCA had approached the MCC and said, please, can we hold our World Cup final at Lords? And Lords had said no. But I think the MCC were quite embarrassed because it was a big success in terms of kind of PR and it got loads of great press coverage for women's cricket. And so actually the, the president of the MCC after the final, 
said, um, you've done enough to deserve a game at Lords. Um, deserve so we'll, a game. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's how he put it. You've overcome your uterus in such a way that we'll let you play in future. Congratulations, girls. So then they played there three years later um, in an ODI against Australia. And that was a really big moment for women's cricket. So I think there's that. And I think that... Obviously, if you're going to have a World Cup in cricket or a Women's World Cup in this case, then you need to start somewhere. And they did start and now it's gone on. And and I think a lot of female cricketers would still describe it as kind of the pinnacle tournament for the women's game because they don't really play tests. So 50 over cricket is kind of seen as this very big deal. And certainly Charlotte Edwards has said, you know, I considered throughout my playing career that 50 over World Cup to be the pinnacle tournament. So it's important in that respect. And I think... I know that people say, oh, the men held a World Cup two years later in 1975 and and that wasn't really much to do with the Women's World Cup. But I do think that if this had been a big flop and hadn't gone very well, then the ICC might well have thought twice about that um, Men's World Cup going ahead. So I think it really gave kind of a bit of impetus to that as well. It's important for a few reasons, but it's not necessarily this great moment where suddenly women's cricket is transformed overnight, I guess. And then fast forward to the last Women's World Cup in the UK. It's quite a telling moment that the ICC chose to give out Rachel Hayhoe flint bats to people in the crowd. My boys still use theirs, probably not as pretty as she did. A lot of heavy across the line. She was a bit more elegant than that, the way that she played. But she is an incredible figure within women's cricket. And I've had this argument with many people before about her and WG Grace. She probably did more for women's cricket than WG Grace did for men's cricket. And he to be honest, did a lot of things. Yes, they're both flawed people and you can look back on what WG Gray said about women's cricket and you can now look back on, now that I know Hayho Flint was trying to do tournaments in South Africa, but what they actually did to move their games forward, she did an incredible job to bring all this together, didn't she? She did, absolutely. I think to pull this off, and obviously she didn't pull off the World Cup alone. There were plenty no. of other people working hard as well. But I guess Rachel Hayo Flint's kind of legacy is putting the women's game in the spotlight. She's sort of the first women's cricket celebrity, the first person who is known for more than just being a woman cricketer. And that's really important for the game, as I say, at a time when it was really struggling to get any coverage at all and that it was seen to be dying. I think that she did revive it. And then obviously she went on and spearheaded this campaign for female membership of the MCC in the 90s. That's really important. We've just heard that Claire Connor is going to be the first ever female president of the MCC. Just yesterday that was announced and that's really exciting. But none of these really huge things... 2017 World Cup final at Lords as a sellout. None of these things would have been possible without Rachel Hayhoe Flint. Raph Nicholson, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. You can follow my guest at Raph Nicholson on Twitter. I also Twitter. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere because these things really help us. This podcast is made possible by the people who support that Patreon. Thank you to all who already support us. Red Ink is made by my dad, Jared Kimber, Nick and Mick Corriston. This is your EM. And our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Red Inca listener. 
Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.